the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Liberty in America is under assault. We no longer live in a reality that includes property rights. We're no longer the kings of our own castle. We no longer enjoy the true benefits of capitalism. Instead, we're negotiating our rights with our own government. This isn't how our country was founded. These aren't the ideas of our founders. It's time to seize back our country. This is the Liberty Hour, where these important issues will be discussed for the sake of America's future. With a cigar in one hand and a copy of the Constitution in the other, here's your host, Sean Thompson. Hello and welcome to the Liberty Hour. I am your host, Charles Love. Ignore that guy. He's nice, but, you know, ignore him. Um, I love the show when we have a lot to talk about in the news, but the major stories in the news center around, you know, the topics that I speak about on a regular basis. And this is one of those weeks. It certainly is. And uh, I liked, we all know I can talk, you know, for, for hours on end by myself, but I've seen it. <laughs> these are the times that I like to bring the guests in right away so we can have a little back and forth and try to see how much we can get done in 20 minutes or so here. Um, my first guest is Derek Green. He is a political commentator, writer, and a fellow for Project 21, a national leadership network of black conservatives. His work has been featured and cited in a number of media outlets, including Town Hall, The Daily Caller, The Washington Post. Oh, I wonder how he got in there. And many newspapers across the U.S. His Prager U courses, Who Are the Racists, Conservatives or Liberals, and Who is Booker T. Washington, have over 10 million unique views across several social media platforms. Derek also holds a doctorate in theology and spiritual leadership with a concentration in identity formation. Derek, welcome to the Liberty Hour. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, like I said, let's hope we can dig into enough of this that uh, we can bring some people some information and insight and kind of raise some eyebrows. I want Absolutely. to start. I want to start. There's a lot to talk about, but I think the top, the tip of the umbrella would be the Trump administration's memo on training and federal government jobs. So can you talk about that? Tell the people what it, what it is and what you think about it. Sure. Uh, last week, a member of uh, President Trump's administration, uh, well, Trump directed a member of his administration to look at some of the so-called racial sensitivity trainings and, and racial diversity programs uh, that were given throughout the federal government. He, uh, he, he uh, directed uh, the OMB, the director of the OMB, uh, Russell Vaught, to suspend uh, federal monies going to these types of, of, of programs. And these programs are generally what we what we see when in a lot of businesses um, that aren't at the federal level in terms of diversity trainings, uh, sensitivity trainings, trying to educate uh, employees about the proper responses to racism, how to interpret racism, and so, so on and so forth. And these particular programs generally uh, start out by having white 
uh, participants admit that they are racist, uh, that they, they, they benefit from white privilege, that they may be um, perpetuators of white supremacy. Uh, they have this way of teaching uh, participants that uh, America is inherently or intrinsically uh, and sometimes irredeemably racist. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, these are the kinds of things that, that President Trump looked at and said, you know, these are the types of things that are poisoning um, the minds of people. And so we have a very diverse workforce uh, at the federal level. They were proud of that, but they simply didn't want to use these so-called trainings to try to indoctrinate. And they actually called these types of uh, sensitivity trainings propaganda, which I think is a very, very accurate word. So the president said, listen, no more. We're going to suspend these. We're going to defund them. Uh, and he's, he's prepared to take all steps within the law to make that happen. So at Project 21, we put out a press release saying that we uh, support this particular position of the president. We see the logical consequences of what indoctrinating uh, people over uh, you know the course of a generation that America is evil, that 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 white people are racist, that black people are victims. Uh, we, we, it pretty much characterizes the Black Lives Matter protest, the Antifa protest, and these people, it's not just at the federal level where these people are getting it, are on college, college campuses and universities uh, across the nation. So we, we definitely applaud this, and, and, and hopefully more people will stand up and say, listen, we're not perfect. Racism still exists on this side of heaven, uh, but we can do something a little bit more constructive to mitigate the consequences uh, of the residue of, of what remains of racism. Yeah, that that was a great intro and explanation, and I got your views out of it. Uh, and we're going to unpack that some, a little bit of that over some time. But I got to be a little less optimistic than you. But uh, I mean, not to say that okay. you're optimistic. Op- I guess you were just optimistic because you was you believe it was a move in the right direction, which I think so as well. But yes, uh, we see the the divisiveness of the country. So when I see this, and this happens across the board, I think a couple of weeks ago, we, uh, I was talking about education and going back to school, and the same thing happened. So two po- you made two key points I want to address. The first one is President Trump's directive. Now, I think the directive was correct, but every time I tend to be more concerned when I agree with Trump than I do when I disagree. <laughs> and it makes sense, right? And you, and you can see why. When, when I disagree with him, I just shrug it off. I was like, every, there's so much hatred for him that there'll be enough people out there that's going to fight against him and I walk away. But when, he, when I agree with him, I'm like, no, please shut up. This is so important. Shut up. When he said, I, when he stood up there and said, it's so important that we reopen the schools, I'm like, oh, we're screwed. We're never going back to school now because these people just don't care. They're anti anything he says. So I agree with the premise, but I said, wow. I know that now, granted, part of me says it's good because there's a large swath of people out there who don't know this is going on. So it's going to bring eyeballs to it. That's true. But mm-hmm. we both know there's going to be a percentage of people that's like, oh, I didn't really read the whole thing. I saw a headline that said Trump says, so whatever he said is bad. So I like this thing that they're talking about right. doing that he was he's against whatever it is. So that's it. So they're going to dig their heels in deeper, which is my which is part of my concern. That was one of the reasons I was less optimistic. And the other is that. It's important that people understand. See, they're right, but when they just like like uh, Project Twenty One came out and said that they they rightly described this as propaganda. But I don't think you can do that in a memo anyway. I don't think that's why people like you and myself need to get out there and say that people really understand what this means or how toxic it is. You mentioned um, Blantifa. 
because that's what I call it, because BLM and Antifa is the same. <laughs> so you mentioned Blamtifa, but in addition to Blamtifa, you know, they're bringing back uh, critical race theory, which isn't new, but now it's, it's, it's hip. Uh, the 1619 <clears throat> Project, it's all the same thing. And, I, and, and the other thing I, I argue is that everything comes from that, and it all comes from what I call is um, adjectived justice. So anytime, my, my premise here is anytime you put yeah. an adjective in front of justice, yeah. you have negated justice. You know, that's so right. if you call it restorative, if you call it social, if you call it even criminal justice reform, and that's something people on both sides agree with. But my argument is when you call it criminal, criminal justice reform, if you're talking about like, like center right people are saying, well, people shouldn't be abused in jail. Of course not. I agree with that. People shouldn't go, get uh, unfair s- sentencing. True. Right. And, and then they throw in innocent people shouldn't go to jail. But that's not criminal justice uh, reform. That's just bad justice. That's not justice. Right. That's right. Because they're innocent. But what the, what the majority of the people talk criminal justice reform is they're putting the criminal above the people. They're like, well, let the guy out. Who cares what he does? We don't need bail. All the bail, every place that's imp- implementing bail reform, what are we getting? We're getting more crime and more people on the street. So I yeah. say that that this is a move in the right direction. It's going to get more pushback than it was going to get before, and that is the reason why I'm not optimistic about it. Listen, to, to your point, you're absolutely right. But listen, I have a couple of Facebook friends who immediately, when they heard this, reflexively, and these are people who are center-right, reflexively said, okay, well, this is good, but what are they going to put in its place? As if just because you take something away, you have to plug that hole with something else. See, this is the problem is that they didn't – I think a lot of people aren't really well-versed in critical race theory, anti-racism, and how how destructive and toxic this this methodology is. And so when they say that he's removing racial sensitivity trainings because of the narrative that surrounds the president, they automatically think that he's – up to no good, as in he's uh, he, he doesn't care about reducing racism. He doesn't care about mitigating uh, the, the effects of discrimination that people may may experience as federal workers. Well, that's not the case. The simple the, the the idea behind this is just simply not to try to further indoctrinate people, particularly the employees of the federal government or with the federal government, in an ideology that says America is racist and the white people, by definition, because they are white, are de facto racist. I think that's corruptive of of, of our civic culture. So. I agree with what you're saying. I just think that people really, really need to kind of read the memo and then read this type of uh, critical race theory, read Ibram Kendi and the anti-racism methodology so they can see how counterproductive this actually is. I actually think that that, that anti-racism and critical race theory actually do more to perpetuate racism than it does to mitigate the effects of racial discrimination. Now, see, that was a perfect segue and setup here. We're going to go uh, after our break. We're going to get into that because, you know, this time goes by so fast. And what we want to do is explain to people what this critical race theory really is, what this anti-racism racism of, of Kendi really is, what it means and how it hurts the people it's supposed to help, but also what it says to the white people who who are buying into it. You're listening to the Liberty Hour on AM 560, The Answer. This is the Liberty Hour. Here's your host, Sean Thompson, on AM560, The Answer. 
Welcome back to the Liberty Hour. Charles Love here speaking with Derek Green. He is a political commentator, writer, and fellow at Project 21, and he is helping me teach you about the wonders of critical race theory, BLM. No, what, what do I call it? Blamtifa and all of the others. And so you can, you can use that. You know, you don't even have to attribute to me. Just talk about, you know, the problem, you know, as an academic, you see, see I can say anything because I'm not academic. Like, so as the intellectual with the PhD standing in front of an audience, I need you to say, well, the problem with Blamtifa you say it enough, it'll start rolling off your tongue. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to try to toss up my layman's version of uh, critical race theory, and you can sharpen it and polish it, polish it up so uh, everyone else gets it. I simply say that critical race theory is, for those of you who haven't heard of it until uh, Trump made it popular, is that so you, you hear the systemic racism thing all the time. So what cr- critical race theory pretty much says is that The individual is not necessarily responsible for the negative actions that they do or the things that happen to them because the system at large is so bad that when you, you know, commit a crime, part of it's your fault for for taking the action, but the system has set up a situation where you're more likely to commit a crime. When you fell in school, when you don't get a promotion, everything, every, it's the 1619 Project, you know, although they're putting it on a bigger stage. It's everything goes back to slavery. This is everything goes back to the system. How'd that do? That's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. The individual is subsumed into your categorization as a member of a race, they divide people into two groups, either those who are oppressed or those who do the oppressing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the consequences of, of your life, especially as it pertains to uh, racial disparities, uh, racial inequities, uh, are not based off of you as an individual or your free will, will or the choices that you made or the sacrifices that you didn't make or the risks that you didn't take. It is because society has been set up in a way to subjugate blacks uh, to reinforce hate, domestic terror, but also to benefit white Americans. Mm-hmm. So everything can be explained away by the evils of the system, the institutions, the you know the, the social structures. All of that is responsible for your inadequacies and inadequacies. So to mm-hmm. remedy that, this is why they're structuralists. They to remedy that if it's a societal problem, then the only type of way to remedy is a societal answer. So this is how we they, the, the people who consider themselves anti-racist, which is a part of this critical race theory, is they say we are going to change social structures, we're going to change policies and legislation, so we can try to even up the outcome. So they're not they're not concerned with uh, equality of opportunity or e- equality to to you know take opportunity or reject opportunity. They are primarily concerned with outcome-based equality, which means they have to do what they can to engineer an outcome as such that it reduces the racial disparities, particularly between whites and blacks. They ignore the disparities between Asians and whites. Uh, they, they ignore the disparities between black immigrants or African immigrants mm-hmm. and black. They simply are focusing on this kind of this, this, this black-white dynamic. And so that's what the entire thing uh, uh, is, 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 is based upon. And so this is why the Trump administration said, listen, enough of this. This is, this is not, not good because for all of these reasons. 
They right. want to talk about systemic racism. They don't want to talk about racism. I think when you talk about systemic racism, you give racism more power and presence than it, act, and it actually deserves. So I've always said, I believe racism exists. I think it will always exist because we're imperfect people. But when you start talking about racism being systemic, what you're actually doing is two things. One, it's omnipotent and omnipresent. Two, no matter what you may do to try to overcome and transcend life's obstacles, you're not going to be able to do that because of the power that's attributed to systemic racism. So what that ends up doing is robbing, particularly American blacks, of hope, optimism, uh, the type of the, and, and embracing the kind of habits that aren't guarantors of success, but they certainly are predictors of success and flourishing. You rob people of that. So in, in a sense, it, you're really not surprised when you see certain, you know, for lack of a better phrase, cultural pathologies or self-destructive behavior, because what we've done is, over the course of multiple generations, it's just robbed people of optimism and hope that they can self-direct their own lives. Right. And, and that's the reason why I tend to take a different approach. I know this is so bad. I do whatever I can to push back against it. So if I need to play, <laughs> so if I need to play the, um, that's not true. Let me explain to you why I can play that sure. game. Right. Sure. But, you know, but I think I try to spend most of my energy and time saying, okay, I'll give you your argument. The system is flawed. It's racist and all that's bad. Tell me how what you're trying to do is going to fix it because they can't really do that. Right. Because we have the evidence even though it's early, it's not early in their push for this, but it's early in the you know move towards generally accepting it, right? And we've already seen yeah. the results of it. So let's assume you're right, because I, you know, we only have five minutes and we can talk a lot. But so I was going to go into some <laughs> examples of why they're wrong. But let's throw that on the table. Let's uh, off the table. Let's focus with. Let's assume they're right. Get, go down the road they want to go down. Where this leads is not good, and we see it all the time, right? What this leads to is, you know, the examples where, what was it, University of Michigan, Dearborn, I think you tweeted this out, yes. wanted, wanted to have yep. segregated events, right? So the, and, and it's right. funny, it went from uh, black to minority to people of color, now it's BIPOC, and next week it'll be something. <laughs> so the BIPOC right. people were over here, and the non-BIPOCs were over here. It's the reason why, you know, everybody says, we fought so hard for the Civil Rights Act, and they all love the Civil Rights Act. So I point out what, what you really want to do is repeal it, right? Because the Civil Rights Act that you love so much and you, you say we as blacks fought for makes it illegal to do the things you want to do because you can't pass laws by race because of that pesky 1964 Civil Rights Act, right? But now you want to go back to segregated dorms and graduations. Did you see this one that uh, they finally convinced people that that is fair, that's a good idea on the left and the right, that they should do blind auditions for, for musicians in the orchestra because then that way, you know, you can't use the fact that it's a woman or a black person or whatever. You're just going to pick the best player. Now they want to reverse yes. that because they're like, no, we need more diversity in order to do that. We need to see who's black so we can pick them. Yes, yes. And this is where this is going what? to lead. Yeah, yes, it's already led there. And then this is what happens. This is what happens. It, in, it <laughs> inevitably and perpetually stigmatizes black achievement. Because these people, if they're trying to engineer parity on the back end, what they're going to end up doing is just simply picking people based off the color of their skin rather than the quality of what they're able to do. So if we're going to just pick a blind violinist just because that person's black, but they're not really that good, everything that blacks achieve not only is stigmatized by being the result of our color, but it ends up being the result of because white people engineered it. So in the end, it really reinforces a sense of white supremacy and black inferiority. 
Is this what they want to do? And they, I never get a, 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 a clear, a, a clear uh, a answer to that question. That's what happened. And so I think that a lot of people, you know, black, white, and all colors in between, just simply say, enough of this. This is nonsense. Let's just go back to judging people based off what they're able and capable of doing. And those who aren't able or capable of doing things is good enough. Let's point them in the right direction in which they improve or, or, or uh, develop the skill set uh, to be better. So then they can be judged based off what they can do, not because of, of the color of their skin. Well, see, you're good. I'm going to have to have you back for a whole hour because this is just flying by. I guess we're talking, to, <laughs> we're talking to Derek Green. He's one of the instructors at PragerU. Check out his videos, among other things. Um, so I guess with a little time we have left, I should focus on this. Why is it that whites, intelligent, successful whites, I get the guilt thing, I get the white privilege, I get that they just want to feel good, but at some point as this has gone on for months and they see they can see the writing on the wall how is it that they're willing to support their own demise you are technically supporting organizations that want you out of power out of control and out of the way what is with them you know that's interesting and that that that's another 30 minute conversation <laughs> but i would I, I would say this i think that they're not looking at the bigger picture i'm not, i don't think that they're looking at the logical conclusion of what's going to happen to the people they profess they want to help. What they're looking at is being on the right side of the right issues amongst like-minded people. So in essence, they're in it for themselves to feel good about themselves thinking they're doing good rather than actually doing good. So it's a very, very narrow, narrow myopic view of these situations. And so I think it's just kind of almost almost like white self-empowerment rather than black development and flourishing. Wow. Well, is there anything you want to plug or mention and get people to look at in the last 30 seconds here? I would just tell people to go to project21.org, and if they are interested in some of my writings, they can go to my personal website, DerekGreen.com, spelled D-E-R-R-Y-C-K, green like the color, dot com. I was going to spell it for it. Well, thank you. Uh, it's been <laughs> great talking to you, and uh, Black hopefully White. you'll come back. And, and he... He is Derek Green, like I said, PragerU uh, instructor and uh, many other things. And when you come back, we will talk about theology. Uh, you're listening to the Liberty Hour on AM560, The Answer. Now, back to the Liberty Hour. Call Sean now at 312 642 5600. Welcome back to the Liberty Hour. I am Charles, and I'm, I got another guest here, um, just bringing on some great people. She's going to talk about her wonderful campaign and trying to help the Republicans gain some seats in Congress. She is Anna Paulina Luna, an American of Mexican descent who grew up in Southern California, a recipient of the Air Force Achievement Medal. She was honorably discharged with five years of the uh, Air Force active duty and one year of service in the Air National Guard. She has an undergraduate degree in biology, has served as the director of Hispanic engagement for Turning Point, and is the chairwoman of the Hispanic initiatives at PragerU, and currently the candidate for Florida 13th District. Uh, Anna, welcome to the Liberty Hour. Thank you so much for having me on. How are you? I'm fantastic. You know, uh, I assume you know Derek. I just had Derek on, 
and uh, Derek Green, and and I, if I if the, the last guest that I was supposed to have didn't switch to dates, I'd have like three PragerU presenters here. It would be like uh, a field <laughs> team or something. Um, but it's good to have you. And uh, I wanted to start there in the sense that a lot of people know you from Turning Point and now PragerU. So you have been getting some press over the last few years and been very effective into explaining the uh, conservative message. So what made you decide to run for office instead? So really, I mean, what I found is, I, and I think like most Americans, is I felt very frustrated with the media. And I realized early on in, in both capacities that, you know, ultimately when you go on television, you have to go through producer to allow you to really talk on certain segments. And if the producers didn't like my message, didn't like what I was talking about, I wouldn't be booked to really share my perspective. And I think that that's an issue that we're seeing on a lot of mainstream television today is that amount of control that's really preventing, I think, a message of, of actual common sense to the American people. And obviously we know that politics is really driven right now with, um, I think, the Democrat Party on identity politics. So I realized that if I wanted to share that message and change the national discussion, I had to run for Congress, that regardless of, you know, the network, if people didn't agree with, you know, for example, what AOC was doing, they're still covering it. And so I realized at that point that I would be running for office. And it's been incredible, a lot of work, but uh, definitely worth it. And I believe that this is really going to help save the country in one of the most um, important elections in U.S. history. Definitely true. And Florida is a very interesting state. So it'd be interesting, you know, to know what the campaign has been like, what, what, what your mess, how your message has been received, what you have seen that may surprise people and what's the landscape of Florida like. Because the rest of us who aren't in Florida look at Florida like, man, it's one of those st- states that go either way. We'll talk about who your uh, opponent is. So, you know, we kind of look at it as, you know, a toss-up state in a sense, and, you know, kind of give us an idea of what's going on there and what it's like. So uh, Florida as a whole, just for everyone tuning in, I, there's something called the I-4 corridor, and everything off the I-4 corridor is needed for any president to secure the White House because of how, you know, our, our um, electoral, electoral college is engineered. So we basically, and especially in my district, which is Florida's 13th congressional district, I'm in a very strategic location in the sense that the president needs this area in order to secure the White House. So there's actually about four, four to five targeted areas around the state that are one of the most important, I'd say, races and key, uh, keys in this whole election. And my district happens to be one of them. So it's not just, you know, my district as a whole is historically Republican, but it's currently being held by a Democrat. And um, it's definitely something that can be flipped. And so I tell people as a whole, you know, with the messaging that we saw with Bernie Sanders early on, where he was very, very, very pro-communist, basically pro-socialist, that didn't sit well with a lot of Hispanic Americans in Miami and Florida as a whole, along with Texas and California has a very high demographic of Hispanic Americans. And so, you know, you have to understand that when you are talking on policy and talking on politics, that that's a demographic that, you know, politicos can't forget about. And when you see now that Biden is polling so low with the Hispanic American demographic, I mean, that's a direct result. Why? He's aligning himself with AOC. He's aligning himself with Bernie Sanders policies. And there's a lot of people, especially in Florida, that fled communism, fled socialism from Venezuela, from Cuba, they know what happens with these policies, and they're not going to vote for someone that's going to enforce those like Joe Biden. 
Right. And you say that your your opponent is a Democrat, but he is not your typical uh, Democrat, right? Um, Correct. Both, both from prominence and where he came from. So those of you who don't know, she is running against Charlie Crist. So <laughs> that, I mean, I'm sure my listeners would be excited about that. But, you know, that kind of changes. You know, former Republican, he held statewide office before. So how is that uh, changing either your approach to the uh, race? But what is his camp doing to you? Because you are also not a traditional candidate. You are extremely true blue. I mean, a true conservative through and through. I mean, I've seen the issues on the site. So how does he attack you if, if, if he does? I mean, I did. He's going to have a really hard problem because here's the thing. Um, you're absolutely right. I'm not your average candidate. I literally grew up in the welfare system. I am a minority woman. I'm a second-generation American. My family really struggled with drugs. I literally had to claw my way out of poverty. Ended up joining the military so I could put myself through college. I was actually later on accepted into a medical school. And I turned down that seat in medical school so that I could do what I'm doing right now. So I can tell you that, you know, if he wants to play those cards, he can't just sit there and call me racist because I believe in immigration policy. You know, he can't use some of those lame arguments that the Democrat Party tends to use. But here's the thing, too. I mean, Charlie Chris, for those who might not know who he is, he was a former Republican governor of Florida. He was a Republican then he changed parties to independent, and then he is now a Democrat. And he's not just any Democrat, though. He's the fundraiser of the DCCC, which is the Democrat um, uh, Congressional Campaign Committee. So he brings in money to every single Democrat in the country to ensure that their seat is solidified. So he's basically the head of the snake. And really what's interesting <laughs> about him is that we are in one of the strongest veteran-heavy districts in the state of Florida. So I'd say upwards of about 25% of my district is comprised of veterans. And I am a veteran. And, you know, a lot of people, especially politicians, want to say that they care about veterans' issues and that they'll go to fight for them. They like to take pictures with veterans, just like they like to take pictures with minorities, because, that you know, it's good for their blo- uh, voting block. It's been poll tested. Well, I'm not that person. And I'm a very real person at that. So, I mean, they might hit me, but I am who I am. And I'm a street fighter. And that's what's right, really needed right now in Congress. And that's how I won my primary. I wasn't exactly, I'd say, the establishment pick. And yet, nonetheless, I was able to raise over $1.2 million on small dollar donations. That's unheard of. I raised money from all 50 states, U.S. territories in Washington, D.C. So it very, very quickly became a national race. And my average mm. donation was $20. That is amazing. Uh, we are coming up to the break. So tell the people where they can say, because this new, the way they do uh, elections now, money comes from all over the case, all over the country. So tell people <laughs> where they can find you so they can support you. Yes, yeah, so all of you can donate to me, and I hope that you do. Go over to vote on Paulina.com. It's A N N A Paulina, C A U L I N A.com. Or you can head over to any of my social media accounts, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Real Anna Paulina, and you'll find my donation link on there. And I am pro life, pro God, pro Constitution, and anti socialist. <laughs> that sums it up. Anna, thank you for joining me on the Liberty Hour. Have a great evening. You too. Bye bye. That was awesome. When we come back, we'll talk more of the critical race theory. You're listening to the Liberty Hour on AM 560, The Answer. You're listening to the Liberty Hour with Sean Thompson. Get on the line with Sean by calling 312-642-5600. Welcome back to the Liberty Hour. Charles Love here. Can you give me that number? I want to give Sean a call. 
That's 312-642-5600. Thank you. I'm going to call him to see if he answers. Um, so, uh, critical race theory. 1619. All that jazz. I was talking to Derek Green, right? And I said, where does this lead? And I left a couple of examples there. I left out the biggest and most recent one, right? So, Macbeth, what, uh, obviously you've seen it. Uh, what are your thoughts on how it happened and what brought us to the ambush in L.A.? Did you go to sleep? He does this sometimes. I'm having a technical difficulty. Hang on. <laughs> no, no, no. Why well, stay awake while you're doing the show? I no, mean, keep talking. I'm waiting for it to unfreeze. <laughs> well, what I'm talking about, for those of you who don't know, Two officers were shot in an ambush in Compton, I believe, technically. A man just walked up on video, shot in the car a few times and ran away. Uh, when I went on air, at least the last time I saw it, he was still at large. They don't know who it was. And if that's not bad and ugly enough, when they were transporting the police officers to the hospital for treatment, let's see here, what were the uh, BLM protesters chanting? Oh, yeah, I hope they die. You know, just normal stuff. What you normally say when somebody gets shot and they go to the hospital, I hope they die. Don't know them. Don't know their race. Don't know anything about it at the time. I mean, I'm sure they know now, but at the time they were saying it just, they were cops. Therefore, I hope they die because they were obviously bad, evil racists. What brought us there? You know, what is contributing to that? Now, a lot of people I've had a, you know, some would call it a debate. I call it a um, educational and enlightening experience with a friend of mine who tried to sell me, and I see a lot of people saying this, on the notion that Trump's rhetoric has uh, somehow contributed to this because it has awakened the white supremacists and made them active and alert. And as you all know, I try to give people their argument, but at the same time, if something's illogical, I point it out. And I just ask the basic question. So I don't spend my time defending Trump. There's a lot of things I disagree with about it. And, you know, it's, it's, but it's a, as a politician, it's not like I hate the person. And he's, he's a big boy. He can defend himself. But what I will say is, let's go to the logic. So we got hey, white back. supremacists. I'm sorry. We're Did back. you just say something? Are you back? We're back. Wow. Oh, yeah. well, I was here all the time. I my don't know my system is on. All right. No, I um, to, uh, I let to. me make my white supremacist point, and then I want you to answer the question <laughs> about the ambush. All right. As long as it's not about yeah. me, you're good to go. Well, I did say it was about white supremacists. So, anyway, so you got white supremacists, right? They're out there. They're hating the blacks. The whole thing. They're loving America. And then they're living a dream as, you know, oppressors because that's what they want to do. And then Obama wins and becomes president. Remember, they're they're racist and they're white supremacists. So what you're trying to tell me in this whole all of this racism started with Trump kind of deal is that he was president for eight years. They didn't do any of this stuff. They got rid of the black guy. Not only did a white guy win, but a white guy who was in the opposite party of the black guy, who was the birther, quote unquote. Um, now, would they be happy about that or upset? See, logic would portend that they would have been most animated because, you know, look at this political um, climate we're in right now. It's all about 
the enemy. There are no Biden supporters. There are people who hate Trump. Right. So if that's the case, if these white supremacists should have been energized by an Obama presidency without the need of a Trump. So for one, there's no way Obama should have won the second time. And number two, Trump winning, you know, being a, a fellow white supremacist should be like, ah, we can relax. We got our country back. They wouldn't go out and be upset if that was the truth. So it's illogical what they're trying to say. So you would have expected people in the streets in, say, 2008, 2012. But probably uh, even more in 12. They were like, he's not going to win. Then he wins. Oh, no. Oh, they should be in the no. street. Yeah. Right? You but that's not what we have. So what they're trying to sell me is that the white supremacists are, didn't, awake, didn't wake up until Trump came along. Maybe it they weren't no aware sense. of their white supremacy yet. Oh, Trump taught them. Yeah, All right. He, that's a good point. That's know. a good point. Can you teach someone an entire ideology through dog whistles? And apparently you can do it in weeks. But I guess you, we got a break coming up. Are you going to tell me what you thought when when you saw this uh, ambush? I'm I'm a big fan of ambushes. I I like every ambush. I like Platoon for that reason. Yeah. Oh, in the movies. <laughs> This is the Liberty Hour. Here's your host, Sean Thompson, on AM560, The Answer. Welcome back to the last segment of the first hour of the Liberty Hour with Charles Love, not Sean Thompson. And I want to go on record and say, I don't like ambushes. (laughs) So... (laughs) Yeah, we had an an off-air conversation... I was dealing with some technical issues during the uh, during the last segment, and I didn't really know what we were talking about. I thought you were talking about a reporter ambushing a, a politician with a question. I just figured I had so you to. Like, allow... Thought what I you know what do you think about the ambush? I said I like all ambushes. <laughs> but uh, what were we talking about, Charles? I figured I had to at least allow you to explain it because people were probably what 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 what, what, we what sort of ambush? About the police were we... officers who were ambushed in their car shot on tape, and then when the the EMTs came to rush them to the hospital for aid, people blocked the entrance to the emergency room and say, I hope they die, in which, you know, I cue that up, and then Macbeth says, I kind (laughs) of like ambushes. (laughs) You know, context does clarify that slightly, doesn't it? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so no, nobody nobody here was uh, advocating ambushing cops, for sure. Um, But... Yeah. But would you say what? What would you say? Say that came from that that these kind of actions um, come out of? Well, I mean, it comes out of a. There's zero threat of accountability, right? There's there's not a consequence for this stuff. If you're part of a crowd, um, they don't prosecute entire crowds. So as long as you don't poke your head up above the fray, then then there's no consequences in today's world. And that's that. You know, it's almost as if a uh, vice presidential candidate had said something about that. <laughs> you know, I, I wish we had some audio of that. Well, I wonder if um, there's a vice presidential candidate, if they find the guy because they haven't caught him yet. Mm. Hopefully they will. Of course, I do hope that they find him. Yes. And I hope that he's prosecuted to the full system. Don't try to exclude me from these good thoughts. I, I'm not excluding you at all. I'm talking about what I believe. <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder if he is called, will a certain vice presidential candidate come out, go to visit him, bring him soup, and then say, I'm proud of you. Well, one would hope not, but well, um, we, we, well, it, 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 I can't say that, um, you know, may, maybe that would happen. 
I don't know. Maybe it would happen. But but without any sort of precedent for that happening in the past, I don't think it would be responsible of us to. Uh, oh, oh, wait. I'm sorry. Oh, right. Because that would never happen. Not, not anybody. Yep. In yeah, a rational world, you wouldn't think it would happen. Right. In a rational world, which we are not in. No. Yeah. Things would be different. But I don't know. I think not necessarily to the level of violence, but these things will continue to happen if people, regardless of their political ideology, stand up to it. You can be like, I hate Trump and I hope he lose, yet you don't get to break windows or loot or attack police officers or attack innocent people or murder people in my neighborhood and get away with it or, you know, attack somebody and and just because the police shoot you, I forgive you. Yeah, voting for Biden and saying people shouldn't destroy other people's livelihoods are not mutually exclusive. Um, It would be nice if more people would realize that. Well... We're coming up with the second hour. We're going to have Patrick come in and tell us about Chicago and talk about Chicago and New York. But they shouldn't be mutually exclusive. Maybe they are. Stick with us. You're listening to the Liberty Hour on AM 560, The Answer. But wait, there's more. You're listening to the Liberty Hour with Sean Thompson. Get on the line with Sean by calling 312 312- Six four two fifty six hundred. Welcome to the Liberty Hour. Charles Love, your host. And don't get on the phone. You can get on the phone, 312-642-5600, and talk to Patrick Brutus, who's coming up next. You know, who's here now? What do I mean next? This is the time. This is Patrick time right now. It's going to come on. Tell us all the uh, already news on. in Chicago. And do what? He's already on. And that's what I'm saying. He's on, and he's going to tell us the news of Chicago. He's going to tell us, and maybe he can answer whether he likes ambushes or not. Okay, I'm done. That's my last one. Uh-huh. I got it out. Well, sure it is. Patrick? Good evening. Good evening, 560 AM audience. Yes. Uh, Charles, what's going on, buddy? Oh, nothing much. Just having a whole lot of fun over here. Some of it at yeah, uh, McBeth's expense. I know Macbeth is having a hard night with the tech fails, and he he totally went sarcasm on you on the ambush. Didn't get that one. He was he didn't go sarcasm. He didn't hear me. That's what it was. He didn't, yeah, I, he didn't I had no what idea what we were about. talking about. <laughs> it's but, it's but seldom still, that I lose track of the show, but it happens. And that was a bad time to do it. It was unfortunate. <laughs> but we're gonna we're gonna move on and stop talking about it. It's yeah, yeah, that's a terrible thing that happened in, in Compton. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. but and you're right. Hopefully they I, I, find I love, him. Yeah, they, they won't catch him. But, uh, oh, they have it on video, so they, they might catch him. Yeah, but it's like a hoodie. and a, Well, if they use the cameras, if they got cameras like they do in New York, they can piece them together and walk him down the block, and maybe they'll get him. And, you know, Charles, happens, I will say real quick. Check this out, Charles, real quick. And I, and I just want to, it's, it's Chicago-related. When you said cameras and them having a description of the offender in this uh, uh, L.A. County Sheriff incident where they shot two police officers, um, I have come to learn that Chicago has 4,000 city cameras, mm-hmm. but the city has access to over 29,000 cameras. Mm-hmm. So when they tell you that they can't find, you know, anything criminals or what have you, it's it's just now to me even more unbelievable than any other story I've heard before about them not being able to solve crimes where now they have camera access to virtually every square inch of this city. 
And I hope that they utilize that network in the greater Los Angeles metro area to find these killers, these uh, these assailants. Let's right. not uh, say killers yet. They're not dead yet. But, yeah, exciting. We They're in stable that condition last time I heard. Sorry, uh, Beth. <laughs> All right, I, I'm sorry. Uh, you know. I said I was dead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yes, they, I, when I saw her, they were in stable condition. Yeah, no, you're right. They were. They're not. They're not uh, pronounced yet. So you know, it's just hold out faith for you know them. Um, so a couple of hot topics here going on this week in Chicago. Just a couple of interesting stories. Um, obviously, the budget woes continue here in the city. Um, CPS is off to a bad start with attendance. Yeah, you mentioned that. So they've started school already? Yeah, so the first week of school uh, has been completed. It was a four-day week with the Labor Day kicking off the vacation or ending the vacation. Mm -hmm. And um, their first couple of days, they had a lower-than-expected attendance rate. It fell below 90%. And so they were very shocked because, obviously, you know, everybody's at home. But 90 is high. They don't get anywhere near that in regular school. No, so yeah, you're right. So, uh, but typically the first day they always make a big push right. Everybody for, shows up, you know, ninety six, ninety seven, hundred percent, and they you know make a big deal about it. And the, so this year they were like way below, like eighty. You know, they're way down mm-hmm. there, and and uh, that's a signal that either there's an unwillingness to you know participate in this remote learning, or two, there's a digital divide that is even now more exasperated now that you know folks are home and needing to be connected, right? And so I'm sure the city is going to address that right away and we'll see an improvement in scores, um, hopefully. And then there's another story uh, this week that that brought my interest, uh, that raised my interest. Uh, There's a drug dealer passing out free heroin and apparently there have been some overdoses um, going on and the location of this free heroin uh, story is literally a block away from a police station. So Are you giving us you the address only... so we can go get some? I mean, I mean well, fine. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just only, trying to verify. You, you can so. only see these kinds of things in the hood, right? Um, but is it? Why is he doing it? Is it? Is it because COVID related? Like the business is so bad, he's trying to drum up new business. <laughs> well, they haven't caught the guy yet. Obviously, is it know, benevolence but, uh, <laughs> because people don't have the money, but he still wants them to get here? I mean, I, they need to find this guy so we can interview him. It's yeah, like presidential terms, Charles. First one's on me, second one's on you. Oh, gotcha, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. You know, it's like uh, one for you, one for me. Two for you, one, two for me, right? Well, perhaps um, he was a police officer, and that's why he worked so close to the, he, he was giving it away so close to the station because he needed to get to work. He needed to no. get to work. There was a rapid bus line over there, too. And so my last, my last two stories, obviously, we'll do our uh, comparison on crime and violence at the end. But this last, this, this next story, and we can get into all these but this last story is the uh, WikiLeaks revelation of the Eric Trump secret text thing to the mayor. Uh, that, to me, was another interesting tidbit that came up this week in the news in Chicago, mm-hmm. that the Trump family members are back-channeling, talking to our beloved CEO of the municipal corporation known as Chicago. And it just defies logic because of what we see in the news regarding the two of them and how they relate, right? And so that's been a shocking, you know, revelation, to say the least. Well, who initiated the uh, communication? Uh, So it looks like 
it was Chicago that reached out to the family. Mm-hmm. And uh, the story is the the administration reached out to the Trump family because of all the the you know the economic impacts of store closing and the need to secure you know retail and business ventures in Chicago and so mm-hmm. apparently they were on the list as well so mm-hmm. there were messages that went out to the Trump family Eric responded kept his receipts obviously so now we have the record and he said thanks you know you're swell we're supporting you we're all you know we're behind you 100 percent of the way but it doesn't match the public tone right and so this as you know is confusing to many. Um, who follow this, you know, closely in the tweets and the press conferences where they've both gone at each other. Obviously, Chicago is the object of Trump's affection, you know, since the campaign. And now, you know, it, it, it's just amazing. It's just amazing. Hmm. So well, we can we can unpack any of those if you want. We can go into well, it. Well, it can't be surprising in a political relationship that things aren't always what they seem, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes yeah. you got. Re- Go ahead. And I'm and I'm reminded by this because when I when I heard of this story and I read into it, it reminded me of one of her first um, her first uh, travel um, her first ventures outside the city as the new mayor was to, was to go meet with Ivanka, mm-hmm. and so that that remember that. Right, right, right. You know, I forgot about it, that. It's like this uh, shadow diplomacy without the shade, right? Well, so. well you got to remember, <laughs> we're living in a, in a different time because everybody's so, you know, the, the anger is so heightened. But we're almost just, just a little too young to actually, old enough to remember it, but too young to really see it and be a part of it. But, you know, there used to be a time you know, 70s all the way up to the mid to almost late 80s where politicians, when we see the politicians on TV yelling at each other and calling that guy a son of a, and then right. they'd leave, leave they'd Congress and then they'd go hang out. They're right. They'd be like, right. Uh, right. Is that a, uh, and the cameras go off. It's like, is that your house or my house this time? No, we did it at your house last week. Well, don't forget to bring right. the wine. Okay. You know, that just used to what it be. Uh, that was what it was like. Right, I'm imagining Tip O'Neill and the way he kind of ran things go. down there. Tip, you know, Tip and, and Reagan, even right? Here locally, yeah, Tip yeah. and Reagan and all these guys who just go out there and just browbeat each other publicly, and then they go out and have drinks. Yeah, now they kind of really club. don't like each other because obviously yeah. politically the divide is wider, right? So they weren't um, on the issues as far apart as the Democrats and Republicans are now. So it's kind of harder to still get along. But still you have people, you know, I mean, think about any other walk of life. Anywhere else you meet people, there are people you don't really have a lot in common with, but you think they're really nice people. It's like, that's a cool guy, right? As long as we don't talk about right. that topic, we can hang out. We can hang out. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you think that's the way people are supposed to be because it's supposed to mirror real life, right? right. And they say you got to work across the aisle to get stuff done. And so now in the, today's age where you don't have any real part of, uh, bipartisan work, you know, we don't see the things getting done. Well, that's why that's, nothing gets you know, done, right? As, right, and that's where we suffer, right, as the taxpayers. Well, kind of, but, but the other flip side to that is the, the views of these politicians are so extreme, I don't really think I want them to get anything done. 
act, right? <laughs> so think about that. Um, when we come back, we'll talk more about this, more about Chicago and New York connection, and talk a little bit about the uh, black table from this past week. Um, you're listening to the Liberty Hour on AM560, The Answer. Our expectation is that this is going to be treated with the level of seriousness that it should be, period. Don't try to bait us, mischaracterize, pit one against the other. We're not playing that. We are in a serious situation here, and we need a serious response. This is the Liberty Hour. Here's your host, Sean Thompson, on AM560, The Answer. Everybody knows that the day is Welcome back to the Liberty Hour. Charles Love here. With Patrick Brewis, giving me the lowdown yes, in Chicago. Yes, Chi-Town. Um, you know, it, this is always a good little levity break right here coming out of this commercial. I just want to say something light. Today, the Bears won their season opener in comeback fashion against Detroit. Who's and, that? Charles, I want to tell you. <laughs> and I want to share with you the Chicago Cubs pitched a 12-0 no-hitter today, and so that is just a double victory. Plus, I'm on the radio with Charles Love here at AM560. Uh, yeah. it's, it's a trifecta. I, 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 got, I got a question about that's, this. That's Why the are there so many the bears in Chicago? Baby bears, regular birds. I don't understand. It's, a, it's an urban area. Where do you, are these And who are they playing? What do you mean they won? That's Patrick got it. What is he talking about? What do you mean they won? I don't understand. The Bears reigned victorious over the Lions. They, they scored more points than the Detroit Lions, Charles. In, what in kind of football, points? Are, what are they playing? You see in football. They're playing Oh, they're playing. Sport. See, that's what you're missing. You never told me what they're playing. Why would Bears be playing football? Look, I'm not going to get into this. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, you love Gallivan with your fancy foosball. Fr- <laughs> anyway. There you go. The foosball. Foosball. Uh, Waterboy, Got it. Yes. Um, that's it. So, that's um, it. You got another uh, episode of The Black Table under your belt? Yeah. You know what, Charles? This has been a, a very successful launch. This is uh, now three episodes in the can. Each episode, according to our metrics, has gone beyond 1,400-something views. Our reach and engagement has increased every single time we've gone out. This show wouldn't be the success that it is we think without the stellar platform and cast that we feature right which is me you charles love uh john anthony brian mullins black and right that's it that's it and uh terrell barnes and Kay winding our our host oh, our, me, our moderator what, a, what are we gonna do about we how are we great... gonna fix terrell stop stop how are we gonna fix terrell <laughs> look everybody you, you need to go you, and you need to watch this last week Watch the past episodes and, and, and watch every week, but you need to watch it so you'll see what I, what I mean. We're really just trying to send love. I think the whole show really has become how to fix Terrell. <laughs> it's, it's a therapy <laughs> session. And I, I will say, like, go back and watch this last week's episode, September 10th, on the Black Table uh, Facebook page. Go download that. Watch the podcast. And Charles was kind of going at it Yeah, a we kind of got into it, didn't Terrell, we? Terrell, they wanted to make sure, I think you were trying to, to make sure that Terrell could actually, uh, uh, you know, convey to the listeners the platform of the DNC. You wanted to know a lot of what, why, how. Uh, well, explain, well, look, explain, let's explain. be honest. I didn't really want to know the platform of the DNC. He just has it programmed <laughs> in his brain. You can ask this guy, you know, so exactly what are you thinking about having for lunch tomorrow? And he'll start talking about Biden and Obama. 
which yeah, is what I, I mean, took he's exception to. He's a very to. good deliverer of the talking point. I will <laughs> agree with you there. He's a very good deliverer of the message. He's got it down pat. I mean, of course, you know, he's a supporter, blind supporter, and we got to talk to him about, you know, opening his about eyes. At least opening his eyes, right. But you see, there are people we're, out there like it. So see, but this yeah. is a good, good, good thing for the listeners to understand, you know, many of whom who are listening to the show are probably obviously conservative. And they are at this point, after three years of Trump, they've written off their friends and family and all the people who don't agree with them. No, you need to get it. Now, now, granted, I'm not telling you to engage the extreme left because they're not going to listen to you. But those people who just like think that they, who are willing to talk to you and willing to debate without getting angry and calling you a racist, you should talk to them. You will find out that many of them, I'm not talking about Terrell necessarily, but you will find that many of them are just, you know, emotionally weak intellectually lazy surface thinkers. Yeah, no, yeah, you're 100% right. We have a lot of people who are just tuned out. And they're, you know, I call them one-dimensional thinkers. Yeah, headlines. And I think that's just, yeah, and that's why I always say, are you peeling bananas or are you peeling onions? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we see a lot of that going on right now, especially, you know, as we get closer to the election, people are not willing to actually unpack things to where they understand what's really going on. They just like what they see, and they're just, you know, give me the 30-second commercial and I'll go with that. And that's sad. That's sad. It's unfortunate. I think people right now need to really unpack and explore deeper. And that's where we come in, because it's actually important to do that. And, you know, you, you think they won't listen. If they're not arguing with you and calling you names, which you would, I wouldn't tell you to waste your time with them. You may not think they're listening, but they're listening. Like Terrell is listening. I mean, maybe not last mm -hmm. week because he was watching football, but in general, he's listening. <laughs> he may disagree, but he's listening, right? So don't yeah. think that if you have the facts on your side, if somebody who disagrees with you is willing to listen, you should talk to them. That's the problem. Too few people have these conversations. So you can't, you can't think you're going to win minds with just think tanks and pundits uh, having these conversations. Yeah. Right? These are the coworkers. You know, these are the friends. These are the family. Those people need to have right. those conversations as well. Yeah. And I think the show uh, so far is offering that water cooler talk with the edge and um, uh, an ability to actually go deeper than, you know, just standing at the water cooler, right? So I think we're actually, you know, fulfilling an intellectual stimulation that people have about the issues. And so I'm excited about the show. I'm really looking forward to each week now, especially hanging out with you guys gives us a chance to talk about the issues that people are talking about at the kitchen table as well as at work. And I think that we've been able to really talk about it from the perspective also from you know, an African-American uh, male perspective, which we're not getting out there on the news or in these, you know, pundit-driven talk shows either. And the so, rest of us, because the African-Americans must be like you and you and Terrell, because me and, uh, and and Brian, we black. <laughs> see, see, we need to have that as a topic. Explain to me, I need to explain to you people how I'm not uh, African-American. <laughs> All right, you're not going to get me with that next week. I'll tell you, I'm going to be ready for you next week. <laughs> <laughs> right, see, that's why I need to stop having you on. You get... You get uh, all the uh, my playbook beforehand, and then I can't get get, get my my points across. Uh, tell me about I'm Chicago. Gonna be, you said you were going to tell I'm me gonna, what I'm going to be. I'm going to be so black. I'm going to be that guy coming out the bathroom with Eddie Murphy coming to America black. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now that's black. Or is that African American? Uh, anyway. That's almost as black as Dick Van Dyke in the Mary Poppins movie. That's so. Oh. Yeah, but, that, but that's different. He was said chimney sweep. No. 
No. Mute. <laughs> Mute. All right, let's get our final number here. Right yeah. now, as of as of 3 p.m. today, unfortunately, the murder death kill count in Chicago this weekend so far is 39 shot, 9 killed. Um, so, and I suspect tomorrow, I predict tomorrow morning when we have accountability Monday, it'll be over 50 shot. I don't know how many killed, but it'll be over 50 shot. There always tends to be a lot of action on Sunday nights. And so hopefully um, New York has its, has us beat this weekend. And so what do you guys got up there? Actually, the, the numbers have gone down this week, Is it but football? they can't celebrate because they're still <laughs> much higher than normal. They're only, remember, I, th- I think last week I told you that they closed August 166% up from last year. Right, They've already right. Sur- surpassed last year in by the end of July. This week, they're only 50% up from last week. But I guess if I bet if I dug into the numbers last week, this week, last year was a high week. But they still have, you know, random shootings, people getting shot in the head in broad daylight, this, that, or the other. But another thing that will liken uh, New York to Chicago that you can probably relate to is I found out that their um, um, close rate, this will sound familiar to you is mm-hmm. shy of 20% now. Oh, wow. Wow. You so guys are shooting almost as bad as Chicago. It's just under 20%. Yeah, it's lower than, than I think Chicago inched up to like 23, 24, right? No, no. Chicago is between like 15 and 17 clearance rate. Oh, yeah. yeah we terrible. still got you. Yeah, it's under 20. Yeah. No, yeah. actually, it's, it's just yeah. over 20. It says out of 1,000 uh, yeah. gun cases, they have 210 arrests. Yeah, so you guys are almost as bad as us. That's is that terrible. gun cases or right. is that shootings? That's shootings. Not, yeah, no, that's shootings. Okay. Shootings. But, but not. I, I say gun it, as in it's not deaths. It's not the murders. It's just all shootings. Right. But 20%, right. but I'm, I'm, though? But I'm, I'm that means, told, that means you I'm, have 80% of the shooters and murderers at yeah. large. At large, at large. But and I, new I ones am every told, day. Charles, Charles, I'm told that we're, we're trying harder. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> and, and what's the other thing I always like to say? This is unacceptable. This is unacceptable. Well, in that, case, I should just, I, in that case, I should just show up at the station. It was like, well, I was on the lam because I murdered somebody. And then I was watching TV and somebody on the TV said it was unacceptable. So I just walked on down here. Well, driving for people's backyard, knocking down mailboxes. I'm going to hope for an improved week in Chicago, greater safety, greater weather, back to school, higher uh, attendance rate. And uh, we'll talk Thursday on the Black Table right. at 8.30 Central. And uh, you guys have a great rest of the show. Macbeth, I'll talk to you later. Peace. Look at that man. He closes out his own segment. That is Patrick Brewis. Here if on you're the not listening. Hour on AM560, The Answer. Now, back to the Liberty Hour. Call Sean now at 312-642-5600. Welcome back to the Liberty Hour. Charles Love here. So going to take a quick turn to politics here. Joe Biden somehow tripped into the nomination for president on the Democrat side, and he had to pick a running mate, and there were sweepstakes. Who could he pick? We know it's going to be a woman, and we know it's going to be a black woman, and we know it's going to be Kamala. And it was all excitement, and then he picks, comes out of the basement and says, Kamala! Is the pick. And now, you know, obviously, we weren't supposed to notice this, but nobody was really excited. Why would they be excited? If they were excited, they would have voted for, for 
when she ran as pre- uh, candidate for president. So they have to kind of create some excitement and make up this excitement. So they got the AKAs, the sorority sisters together, hold up side. And they're like, this is the one. And they got all the talking heads on MSNBC and all the other uh, left wing um, shows and news stories and news outlets to say, this is so historic. This is wonderful. And so now they're trying to sell us Kamala. And it's interesting, but some people think, obviously with Joe Biden being in the basement, that this pick was made to really be president once weekend at Bernie's is no over and we're not playing that game anymore. So if that's the case, it's important to know what Kamala's all about and who she is. So I went to someone who uh, wrote a piece that was prophetic about her to get the answers. My next guest here is Mark Pulliam. He's a lawyer and a writer living in East Tennessee. His work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the L.A. Times, National Review, and obviously City Journal, um, and many other publications. He's a contributing editor to Law and Liberty. Mark, welcome to the Liberty Hour. Well, thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you. And I, 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 I said in the setup that you were somewhat prophetic because you wrote a piece at City Journal and I didn't pay attention to the date the first time, but this was back in 2016, talking about um, Kamala being the next Obama. So you seem to kind of know her makings, how she came to where she was in the state of California and what her beliefs are. And I wanted to talk to you about that because it's important, obviously, like I said, since she's running for president, not really VP. This is an unusual election and we know that. And to say, to tell us about and tell the listeners what she really is about, because, you know, when she was running for president, she was being attacked on that debate stage. Everybody remembers how Tulsi Gabbard dressed her down and basically ended her uh, campaign. But what was the topic of it? The topic was she wasn't like the rest of them as a liberal progressive. She was so tough on crime and she was locking all the people up in, in California and I want to start off by asking, is that true? Well, I wrote this piece for City Journal even before she was elected to the Senate. And it was a deep dive into her record, uh, two terms as district attorney in San Francisco. And then she was uh, into her second term as attorney general of California. And what I did was really look at her record. What had she accomplished? What had she done and what had she failed to do to these positions that she was elected? And as you say, it's ironic that she was criticized during the presidential primaries as being too tough on crime, when in fact her record, if you look at it, is uh, she was probably the least enthusiastic prosecutor in America when it came to punishing criminals. Uh, you know, as soon as she got elected, to, district, to be district attorney in San Francisco, and it was the only election in which she had police support. And the only reason she had police report, support the first time she ran is that her predecessor had prosecuted the police chief and a number of his key lieutenants, and the cases had fallen apart and he didn't get any conviction. So obviously the police were very mad at the incumbent. And so when she ran against the incumbent, 
she had their support. But no sooner had she gotten elected to be district attorney of San Francisco that a, uh, a gang member uh, slaughtered a San Francisco police officer with an AK-47, ambushed him at a traffic stop, killed the officer before the officer even had a chance to pull his service weapon. And three days after the crime, before the officer, whose name was Isaac Espinoza, before he was even buried, she announced that she would not seek the death penalty uh, in, against the cop killer, which outraged people even in liberal San Francisco. She got fierce blowback from even Barbara Boxer, whose Senate seat uh, Kamala Harris ultimately went on to fill. Uh, Barbara Boxer was trying to get the federal prosecutors to go after him just so he could get the, the federal death penalty. So that's how she got started with her career as a, uh, a prosecutor. She reluctantly defended the death penalty when a federal judge declared it unconstitutional. She, uh, in 2015, California had an initiative that would have uh, reduced many felonies retroactively to misdemeanors and have the effect of releasing thousands of convicted criminals from jail. Every police agency and most of the prosecutors in California opposed it. She refused to take a position, and it ended up passing. She refused to criticize the San Francisco sheriff who released Kate Steinle's murderer. Mm, yeah. Uh, she had uh, a program, which is her signature program as a prosecutor, was called Back on Track. And rather than incarcerate criminals, she wanted to give them educations and train them for jobs. And as a result, in San Francisco, she had the lowest incarceration, one of the lowest incarceration rates of any county prosecutor in the state. Okay, I'll hold that right there because we got a break coming up. And after the break, I want you to okay. finish that. And I want to set up where this is going for her rise and where she's what she wants to do as a VP or as president. You're listening to the Liberty Hour on AM 560, The Answer. You're listening to the Liberty Hour with Sean Thompson. Get on the line with Sean by calling 312 312- Six four two fifty six hundred. Welcome back to the Liberty Hour. Charles Love here, and we're discussing Kamala Harris with attorney and writer Mark Pulliam. And at the end of the last segment, you were clearly articulating all the things that she did that were antithetical to her job as attorney general in prosecuting crime. But I want to... Um, play this clip here of Kamala that's been getting attention since she was running for office and get your thoughts on this. We run around with these signs, build more schools, less jails, build more schools, less jails. And we walk around everywhere, build more school. We protest, build more schools, less jails, put money into education, not prisons. There's a fundamental problem with that approach, in my opinion. And it's this. I agree with that conceptually, but you have not addressed the reason I have three padlocks on my front door. There should be serious and severe and swift consequence to crime. So obviously this <laughs> does not sound like the Kamala both you were talking about or she professes to be now. So what was the context of that? So, Because I'm sure you know. And why the uh, different talk there? 
Well, politicians lie, depending on what audience <laughs> is in front of. But I think uh, an elected official who has a long track record like she does, you, their actions speak louder than their words. So I cited many examples of specific things that she did and didn't do as a district attorney and attorney general in California in my City Journal article. There's just one more specific example I'd like, because your, your listeners might be interested in it. Mm-hmm. So in California, there was a convicted murderer serving a life sentence in a California prison, and he claimed to be transgender. He was a man who said that he really felt like he was a woman, mm-hmm. and he filed a lawsuit claiming that it was cruel and unusual for California to force him to live with the genitals he was born with. And uh, these lawsuits, and there's a lot of lawsuits like this that are filed, and they're generally considered frivolous. Well, on appeal, Kamala Harris, when she was attorney general, settled that lawsuit and agreed to give a convicted murderer a sex change operation at taxpayer expense. And this was the first time uh, a major state had, had agreed to do this. And she said that she wanted it to become policy so that all transgender prisoners in California would be entitled to taxpayer-funded sex change operations. So it's ludicrous. She's, she's a prosecutor, wow. and she has all the power of a prosecutor, but she uh, uses these powers to appease uh, interest groups that uh, she supports and to punish enemies. And the interest groups that she supports, if you look at her record, trial lawyers, public employee unions, immigrant rights groups, the LGBT lobby, gun grabbers, opponents of the death penalty, the abortion lobby, the environmental extremists, (laughs) etc. The alphabet soup of uh, leftism, basically. Yeah, so she can say whatever she wants to various groups to make them feel good, but if you look at her record, she has a long record of doing favors, for her friends and punishing her enemies. The, the journalist in California who got those, uh, you know, who, who had taped uh, uh, Planned Parenthood executives who oh, were right, talking about right. the desire to traffic and illegally traffic in fetal body parts, she, as Attorney General, filed a, a subpoena uh, obtained his, to obtain his confidential work product and is currently in the process of trying to prosecute him for violating California law for exposing Planned Parenthood people illegally trafficking in fetal body parts. I think because I got to go here because it's important that people know this because many people in the in what they call the flyover country understand that California is basically a cesspool. And they may be wondering, but they may not like Trump and be thinking, well, maybe I don't like Trump. I'll just vote for the other guy real quick and see what happens on the next election. This is important if this is her, obviously, because, again, I say she's running for president from the position, too. So would you contribute some of California's descent into the, the bastion of petty crime, homelessness and illegal protections? Part of that to her. Yeah, well, she she was a protege of Willie Brown. Willie Brown, when he was speaker mm. of California, was the most powerful politician in California. He was so feared by the Republicans, the Republicans enacted term limits pretty much for the sole reason of making sure that he couldn't continue to be speaker forever. 
And after he lost the speakership, he became mayor of California, uh, mayor of San Francisco. And that's how he helped launch Kamala Harris's uh, career in San Francisco. But he was a ruthless politician and he knew how to use political power to uh, accomplish uh, these unprincipled uh, ends. Uh, he w- was manipulative, and she learned all of those things from him and has proven in her record as district attorney and as attorney general that she knows how to do this and is willing to do this. And I don't have any doubt that if she becomes vice president and, God forbid, someday president, she would uh, be she would be using her powers, which would even be greater powers, but in exactly the same way. And it should frighten every American the idea that somebody with her record could someday be the commander in chief and president of the United States. Well, <laughs> I mean, this is insightful. I, I implore people to go to the city journal and find the next Obama and read your article and understand more about her. I think the biggest concern of all that she's clearly a leftist. She's not even hiding now because the ethos has changed, but she could be play in a general election. This centrist because they're going to look at her like Obama and just say, well, she's the next hot thing and it's historic and want her to win. And like I said, Biden's not going to be there long, but I appreciate you coming on, educating us about that and, and about her and her history in California and her record. And I thank you for joining us on the Liberty Hour. Well, thank you, Charles. Appreciate it. Uh, when we come back, we'll close this up and, uh, kind of point out, since a lot of this has been about BLM and such, why uh, their actions are not really going to make a difference. You're listening to the Liberty Hour on AM 560, The Answer. This is the Liberty Hour. Here's your host, Sean Thompson, on AM 560, The Answer. Welcome back to the Liberty Hour. Charles Love here. In for Sean, since they mentioned him again, and another quick two hours. Say that all the time. Sure was. Um, again, I want to leave with the frivolousness of uh, BLM. And um, as you all know, I guess I found out over the break with that why there were bears and cubs in uh, Chicago running around. He was talking about professional sports. Yes, I didn't know that. I tuned them all out. For what like, country do you come from, sir? No, I'm done with those people. They're crazy leftists. Uh, uh, what do you mean, those people? Yeah, those people. Uh, workers. And uh, <laughs> and I want to leave you with this story. Check this out. This is a perfect example of what I mean by this uh, all theater, smoke and mirrors. So they're all taking a knee. The NBA idiots took a knee on 9-11 in the day after, which is silly. And the NFL players putting stuff in the sign and wearing Brianna hats and don't know what the hell they're talking about. They're all idiots. Anybody who supports BLM is a fool. I'm there. That's just where I am now. I just know it for a fact. But here's an example. But my point is, even if you do that, you're saying because you think things need to stop. And my argument is it's not going to stop because you're not offering solutions. And when crime happens, police are going to do what they want to do. So in Philadelphia... Their team uh, got all social, social justice on us, right? And they, they were going to make a difference, and they need and did this and all, and else, and whatever they did. Same day, there were two, not one, two police shootings, one in Lancaster and one in uh, Berks uh, County. They, one was a domestic. The other was supposedly a guy who, who reportedly had a gun. But the point is this is going to continue to happen. You can take the knee as much as you want. People will still get shot. People will still continue to break the law. 
and they'll still continue to, unfortunately, like Incompton. Well, unfortunately to me, Incompton, just ambush right. a cop. We get it. <laughs> we, we get it. You're, you're all over we that one. Well, Thank well, you. I don't, I don't know what you mean. Um, but yeah, so these silly children who play professional sports need to understand that all of their crying with their millions of bucks and taking a knee and saying this has to stop, nothing's going to stop because it's human nature. So just shut up and dribble. That's my message for you people. Shut up and dribble. You got anything? Nothing. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. You know, I'm not much of a ball handler, but um, <laughs> but but I'll I'll take that pass and run with it. Uh, yeah, I I I think there's a certain amount of of truth in this uh, across a lot of things. People are realizing maybe what's a little more frivolous and what's absolutely necessary to their lives. Um, you see that with uh, companies that are reopening, stores that are reopening. If you're selling craft goods, you're probably not as busy as a place selling, uh, you know, say auto parts or something. You know, the the idea of what is essential now might actually be playing into people's things. But it's also sad that we got professional football players hiding in the tunnel and in the locker room. Frankly, my dear, I don't get it. This a is damn. where we've come. This has been another show, Liberty Hour. Thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed all the info and all the uh, guests. And I did. We will see you next week. I have to go home. I have to go home. I have to go home. I have to go home.